When I was a kid growing up in Jersey, uh, anybody who was a hoot or really funny or something, uh, we'd call him a riot. Ladies and gents, uh, this guy's a riot in more ways than one. Bob Dylan. from the city that dreams. Ring them bells from the sanctuaries across the valleys and streams. For they're deep and they're wide, and the world's on its side, and time is running backwards, and so is the bride. Ring them bells, St. Peter, where the four winds blow. Ring them bells with an iron hand, so the people will know. Oh, it's rush hour now, on the wheel and the plow, and the sun is going down upon the sacred cow. This is Pod Dylan, the show that celebrates the work of Bob Dylan, one song at a time, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm your host, the freewheeling Rob Kelly, and joining me uh, this week to talk about Ring Them Bells from Bob's masterful 1989 album, Oh Mercy, is uh, writer and Bob Dylan aficionado, Matt Steichen. Hi, Matt. Hey, Rob. How's it going? It's great to have you on the show. Uh, yeah, it's great to, to be on the show. I listen to it on my commute pretty much every day. I can pretty much... Uh, squeeze in a one episode on my way there and way back. So it's been, it's been a nice treat for me every day. Awesome. That's wonderful. So yeah, I said, Matt reached out to me to talk about this song, Ring Them Bells, uh, which I mentioned is from the Oh Mercy album, which we should uh, just mention, by the way, is celebrating its 30th anniversary today. On the day that we're recording this, of course, most all of you won't be hearing it until a little later. But uh, this album was released on September eighteenth, nineteen eighty nine. So today is the the just happens to be the thirtieth anniversary of uh, that really wonderful record. So it's sort of perfect that we're talking about a song from it. Uh, but before we get to the song, Matt, since it's your first time on the show, I need to ask you, like, what's your history with Bob? How did you become a fan? Yeah, Rob, uh, I'll work my way through this. I have to tell you, I'm on the back end of a cold, so I kind of have a perfect Oh Mercy voice at this time. It's just a little <laughs> scratchy, just a little deeper than normal, but it, it's doing the job. So so my Bob Dylan story, uh, I know you asked this at the beginning of every episode. Uh, mine is a long and sorted one and uh, kind of a two-parter. I've got my part one is kind of this standard discovering his music stuff, and then part two kind of took my life on a back-to-the-future-type tangent that uh, – has kind of been uh, ongoing here for the last 20 years. So uh, mm. we can get into both of those. But, uh, uh, yeah, so uh, I host, a, at this point, a community education class. I just did the first one last winter where this, what it, what's your relationship to the music of Bob Dylan? What's your Bob Dylan story is kind of night one. And everybody in the class goes through and, you know, was it a parent? Was it a sibling, a certain song or a certain moment in a concert? or a lyric that hooked you and that pretty you know we, we go through one by one and ever since i started going to shows about 20 years ago i've really been fascinated by the different stories people have and the, the what it is about bob dylan's music that when it hooks certain people it hooks them so tight so question one what is it about the music that is so timeless and and catches people and then what it is what is it about those individual people that that I've met over the years in line at 10 in the morning for an eight o'clock at night show that they're willing <laughs> to give up a day of their lives to be 10 feet closer than they would be otherwise. And, and then what is it about those people that do get hooked uh, I, that makes them so compatible with each other? Because I've, I've made so many dozens and dozens of friends over the years uh, through meeting people, at Bob Dylan shows. I met my wife at a Bob Dylan show. Uh, wow. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so it's that's been uh, that's kind of part of part two of my of my fan story. But so, yeah, we we met at a Dylan show. We got engaged before a Dylan show and we at our wedding. We danced at Emotionally Yours and Summer Days and it was fantastic. <laughs> um, and actually, uh, I don't know if you've had a show since the last tour was announced, but uh, we're going to be bringing three of our kids to uh, a couple of the shows coming up next month. So we're pretty excited about that. Um, they're all pretty wow. good Dylan fans, too. <laughs> that is amazing. That's oh my goodness. I had no clue you were going to go down the road. That is that is uh that's wonderful. That makes me feel really happy. That's yeah. really really good. So that's that's, that's part of the the tangent that I talked about. But well, part 1 is kind of the story that you hear a lot of. Uh I grew up in Iowa and kind of a, a rural part of Iowa where I think when Love and Theft came out, I might have bought the only copy sold in Northwest Iowa. Uh <laughs> So my brother's nine years older than me. He had a, a, one of those CD towers that was about 10 feet tall. 
that had lots of classic rock. He didn't listen to uh, Garth Brooks like everybody else. So uh, he had, you know, the Grateful Dead and, you know, the Violent Femmes and Nirvana and Guns N' Roses. And so the three I like to go to sleep to were uh, Simon and Garfunkel's greatest hits, James Taylor's greatest hits, nice, good sleeping music, and then Bob Dylan's greatest hits. That was when I was eight or nine years old. And uh, I always listened to oldies, 50s and 60s radio. So I loved all that stuff, Buddy Holly and all that um, and, of course, the few Dylan songs that were on there. And, of course, over time, I found out that all the songs I like the best, uh, uh, Quinn the Eskimo, It Ain't Me, Babe, All Along the Watchtower, those were all Bob Dylan songs, which I had no idea. Um, mm. So I knew all those early 60s songs, but I didn't know Bob Dylan was alive until 1992 when I saw the 30th anniversary concert on TV. Ah, yes. <laughs> and I only saw the five-minute clip of my back pages. So I was just like, I asked my brother, who was like 18 at the time, I said, like, you know, I know who George Harrison is. I know who Tom Petty is. I know who Neil Young is. Like, why are they all singing with like this crotchety old disheveled guy? <laughs> who is that guy? And he's like, oh, that's Bob Dylan. And I was like, what? The, the same Bob Dylan from the Greatest Hits CD? He's still alive? Like, I couldn't believe that that was the same man. Uh, <laughs> so I always liked the Beatles and oldies and all, radio and all that. But so my brother went went to college and he sent me uh, mixtapes of the 60s material but the non-greatest hits 60s material ah, and yes. so at that point i was like oh okay wow desolation row gates of eden like these are all songs that weren't even you know on the greatest hits and then he sent me don't look back and you know none of it really connected with me at the time like as far as the backstage stuff the one except for the one thing which was the way he sung the lonesome death of hattie carroll and I was just like, wow, you can do that with music. You know, it can have a social impact. It can tell a story. It can just like have 2000 people on pins and needles and just, you know, be making this connection about social justice. And it's like, wow, OK, so this is this is the big deal about Bob Dylan. He's alive and this is why he's famous. Um, so it, it really made an impact on me that he was making music that wasn't just like disposable pop culture. It was timeless. It had artistic merit. It was important to, to society. Um, and so that made me realize that was something worth my time. So that's kind of, uh, how I got to the doorstep of, of crazy Bob Dylan fandom. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I'll bring you up to this point. This is where ring them bells has a big role. Um, yeah, I was like 14 or 15 at this time. I knew the 60s stuff and then ring them bells came on the radio. I was just sitting at breakfast before high school one day. And I heard Ring Them Bells on the radio. And I heard... What what radio station is playing I, Ring Them exactly, Bells? That's, it, it makes me feel like it was an act of God. Because it was a local, small-town AM station. And somebody played Ring Them Bells on it. And I would have never imagined. Like, all they played was, like, Summer of 69 and, like, 80s hair bands. <laughs> and all of a sudden, they were playing Ring Them Bells. And it, like, it literally... I, I, I wasn't, like, a really, really big music fan. But, uh, I mean, I liked Bob Dylan and the Beatles. And I listened to the radio. But when I heard ring them bells i was like i stopped me in my tracks the song got over and they said that was bob dylan from oh mercy and it clicked to me like you mean bob dylan is still touring now it's the late 90s at this point you mean bob dylan tours and he makes songs like this and he sounds like this which is nothing like he sounded like 10 years ago or 20 years ago or 30 years ago so obviously i went to bobdylan.com because the internet had just started up uh, started looking up performances and lyrics. And at that time, they had just started posting live performances. So I heard uh, Ring Them Bells from the Supper Club, mm. which was like, oh, wow. So he brings these songs to life and you can go see him do them in person. Wow. OK. And then Time Out of Mind, one album of the year right around that time. He got his Oscar for Things Have Changed. He was on the top of all the VH1 lists and Rolling Stones, 100 songs of the century and all that. So, of course, I had to look up his live tour, and I saw that he was playing a show about an hour from my house, you know, a few months later or whatever. So I, you know, had to go, obviously. I brought my whole family with me, uh, and it just, you know, it connected me right away. I was like, how have I not been doing this sooner? And I was only 16 at the time. <laughs> and then a year later, he came back again, and I was in the front row, and he gave me a high five, and that was incredible. What? Uh, which, you know— he doesn't leave the, you know, not now even less. He leaves the back of the stage almost never. But wait, wait, uh, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. <laughs> you can't just, yeah. you can't just blow past that. You it was go a magic say, moment, Rob. It really say, was. say that. So hold, wait, stop, stop. The show has to stop. Hold on. So yeah, go, go into detail on this because I that was much I mean, was too much dad. information was, for me to. It was October twenty, October twenty third, two thousand one. It was the Love and Theft tour, which is an amazing tour. Right. Sure. Um, sure. 
you know, debuting on it. The I saw the live de- debut of Too Much to Ask that night, which is one of my favorite songs on the album. So that was great. Uh, after he had been making eyes uh, during If Dogs Run Free, it was during that short-lived time when he sang that song every once in a while. He was looking at this girl in the front row who had a ba- uh, bouquet of yellow flowers. And during If Dogs Run Free and Like a Rolling Stone, he was looking at her and smiling and stuff. And then after Blowing in the Wind, they finished that last harmony with Larry and Charlie. And Bob went to the front of the stage, took the flowers, and then ran across the front of the stage and high-fived everybody. And oh, I was, my God. And I was the last person in line on the right <laughs> side and just kept coming and coming and coming and big grin, smiling and, uh, and high-fiving everybody across the stage. And, and Bob high-fived me, and it was unbelievable. Oh, my God. Uh, it, wow. Google, if you just Google my name and Sioux City, Bob Dylan, you can see my review I wrote the night it happened. It's still there on Bob Link's. Um, so that was just an incredible moment. And at that point I felt oh. like, wow, if, if he's going to keep coming back through here every six months to a year, I have to go every time. And, you know, I always say to my friends, even if you weren't like a big fan of Shakespeare's work, if you lived in the time of Shakespeare and had a chance to go see him, you'd go, right. It wouldn't yes. matter if you cared that much about his specific yes. work. Yes. It's got that kind yes. of importance and cultural impact. It's like you're, it, you have to go and see him. So um, so yeah, at that point I started going to every show with when I was in, within driving distance of the Midwest during high school and college. And most of those were GA. So I get there at 10 in the morning and spend the day with all these 60 to 70 year old white haired <laughs> people mostly. And, uh, you know, made a lot of friends that way. And, uh, you know, went to lots of shows at a time and eventually, uh, yeah, met my wife at one. I always kick myself because if I'd been thinking I'd have brought a camcorder and just interviewed all these people on camera because, the types of people you meet compared to living in a small town in Iowa surrounded by farmland versus going to a Bob Dylan show with these people that are driving around the country in their motorcycles and on in their motorhomes and smoking whatever they're smoking all day in line and talking about their life on the road with Bob. Like it was it was totally a world altering experience. Like my perspective completely changed on, you know, what people value and what kind of people exist. Like I didn't know that there were. You know, there was such a different culture out there besides Bud Light and, uh, you know, Toby Keith or whatever. Uh, so having like the the Bob tour became like this yearly carnival, like it was Bob tour time. And I would just disappear for a week and, you know, hang out and go to shows and eventually met my wife in Rochester, Minnesota in 2004. So that is unreal. That is so much amazing information. I am glad that you said the thing about. Uh, people that if Shakespeare was in town, you'd go see him, even if you weren't right. a huge fan. And and yes. I've said I've said that on other episodes where I've I've been to Bob shows where I see people that bring like their little children with them, like their five year olds. And I mean, not I, I mean, obviously uh, it's very loud for a five year old to go to a Bob Dylan concert, and you're you're probably introducing your child to to cannabis at that point. <laughs> but but at the same time, I have to think that a five year old's not getting anything out of this. But I almost feel like that the parent. Wants to be able to tell this child, you know, after Bob Dylan passes into history, uh, that you want to be able to say to your kid, you were in the same room with this guy. Yeah, you, you know, might at be one the last point, person alive on Earth that can say they saw him live. Exactly. Uh, if, right. Right. If I had been old enough to see the Beatles, even if I had been one or two, I would have loved to have been able to say, yeah, I was in the room with the Beatles at some point. But I'm not. I, they were gone before I came around. So I feel like that. There's going to be this generation of kids. You know, 80 years from now, they're going to be able to say, yeah, I one time was in the same right. room with this guy. People are like, really? This this towering figure of pop culture and musical history? Yeah, yeah, I was there one night. You know, that right. I, I feel like that's why these parents do it, which really well, warms my heart. So that's I, that's I can really tell cool. you, it, it's really both, Rob. I mean, my, I, it's for the historical value. But my kids, obviously, with me and my wife being in charge of the house, we they love Bob Dylan's music authentically they love it they know <laughs> How the, old words. Are the kids now they know the words to hundreds of songs they sing Joker Man all the time they sing this oh my god Mr. Tambourine Man all the time they love sing-alongs in the car all these uh, ain't gonna go to hell for anybody they love uh <laughs> Levi they know the deep cuts <laughs> they, they do uh Levi's 10 he got to go to his first show with us two years ago and then this time we're bringing our eight-year-old and our five-year-old our five-year-old loves music more than any of them. He's so excited to see Bob. He's been singing uh, with his uncle on stage since he was two or three. Uh, he was a musician as well. Um, and he knows all the music and he's got great rhythm and he's so excited to see Bob next month. It's going to be great. 
that's uh, well. You have to make sure you get a picture of the whole family at this show. Oh, yeah. Well, mean, if you go onto my Twitter, Rob, you can see my five-year-old singing. You know, 1970s arrangements to uh, "All I Really Want to Do," and uh, <laughs> you know, imitating the J- Joker Man Letterman performance, syllable for syllable. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So no, they're they are so excited for uh, the tour that just got announced. It's going to be great. That is amazing. That is that is absolutely amazing. That is oh, that's just that's so wonderful. I, I just that he did he high fived you, man. That's, he did. Uh, wow. Yeah. I mean, how? I mean, can, is do you have any? Not that that story's not enough, but like, is there any particular? I mean, you're probably you have been the closest to him of any human I've ever talked to. Like, is there anything particular about seeing him up that close that surprised you, or was it? What was what was that experience like? Just being that close to him. Uh, you know, at that point, especially because my first show, I sat in the back of the upper deck and then my second show, I sat in the middle of the floor. And then that third show was the first chance I got to see him up, up, up close. And it was an incredible experience. And then I remember once during like a Rolling Stone, I turned around just and looked at the audience just to see his perspective. And it was just incredible to see what he sees from there. And it was in a small theater and, uh, yeah, it was really incredible. And to see him on stage so happy like he wasn't a lot of the 2000 2001 era type shows he was really basking in you know being out there and, and enjoying putting his songs out um as far as meeting bob though i don't know if you've ever talked to any bob dylan fan club members um i was actually with the two women that started the bob dylan fan club the day that bob called them backstage and asked him to start a fan club asked them to start a fan club on his behalf um, so that's another good story for you. Um, if you go to the Bob Dylan fan club.com, you can read all the details. Uh, but Kate and Caroline, like me go to a lot of shows and they get there very early. So I've gotten to know them over the years. They're awesome. Um, but we were going to a string of shows through the Midwest, all going to the same shows and they wear their dresses and they're in the front row and we're all very animated and, and enjoying things. And Bob's Bob saw us every day for a few shows. And the next day we were in line and the security guys were like, you two come with me or whatever. And then he brought them back behind the buses and Bob talked to them for like 20 minutes and said, you know, I've never, I've never had a fan club, but I feel like reviewers <laughs> and a lot of people don't really get what I'm all about. And I can tell that you guys, you guys get what this is about and why it's important and what, and you see what I'm doing that's different. And I want you to like spread the word about, about what it is I do. Um, oh my God. <laughs> So Go forth, my disciples. <laughs> they have been faithfully executing that pledge, you know, for like 14 years now. Um, they've got like 30,000 Facebook followers now, I think. Um, but I think what he, what Bob, what Bob saw there was that they aren't overanalyzing what he's doing. They go from show to show, and Bob goes from town to town. Just like, have you been watching that country documentary that's on PBS? No, I'm familiar with it, but I have not seen it. It's Ken Burns, and he's talking about the history of country music. But the last episode was about Hank Williams and Jimmy Rogers. Now they would travel from town to town, and that was like their calling. And those are Bob's heroes, and he's doing that same thing. He doesn't take himself as seriously as a lot of other people take him, which is something Louis Kemp, his friend, said, too, during that last book tour, was that Bob is not in it for, you know, recognition, and he's not in it for trying to look like the smartest guy in the room or to blow people away with poetry. He's trying to go, go from town to town like his heroes did and bring people a much more simple kind of joy. He wants people to viscerally enjoy the music that they experience. That's what I think that's what it's about for him. I think that's, that was the message that he saw Kate and Caroline understood like that his music was bringing them happiness. And that's, I think what he wants out of his music. Uh, before we get into Ring Them Bells, which is, uh, like I said, one of my favorite songs. Uh, so I also write for the Minneapolis Star Tribune uh, as a freelancer, um, usually sports. Uh, but when Echo uh, Hellstrom died last year, I, I actually uh, took it upon myself to write her obituary and life story story for them. So I got to interview a lot of Bob's old friends and colleagues who I, I know several of them through the Minnesota Bob Dylan fan circle anyway. But I got to talk to them about you know, what it was like to grow with, up with Bob and, and get to know a lot about Echo's life and all that stuff too. So that was really fascinating. Um, so I did have about a half hour where I talked to Leroy Hoykala, Bob's high school drummer from the Golden Chords. I Jeez. talked to him in the Hibbing Auditorium for about a half hour one day about Echo and about some other things. So I did write down the four specific things I remembered that he said about Bob. Uh, so he said that Bob would always say, 
do it this way. Like, cause Leroy was doing the drums and, and Bob had a very specific way he wanted things. And he was very quick to step in and, and tell Leroy how to do his little parts in the songs. And then Leroy remembered that, uh, when Bob, uh, when people would ask him in, in school, like, so you're practicing, you know, with the band or whatever at your house. And he would say, we don't practice. We play music. <laughs> uh, so that, that's what Bob said. And, uh, he was also quick to say that a lot of biographers and, and TV shows and things are quick to say that Bob was kind of a loner or an outcast in his hometown. And Leroy said it really wasn't that way at all. He said Bob had a lot of friends. You know, people liked him. It just Bob had an independent streak. He, uh, Leroy said he wasn't a loner at all. He just he could have fun with friends or he could go off and have fun on his own. And he was really independent. He, he wasn't really he wasn't the outcast in his hometown like a lot of people have painted a picture. So. So I thought those were cool things to learn from uh, from Bob's old drummer back in the day. That's uh, that, that's amazing, Matt. It really is. I mean, I, to peek behind the curtain a little bit, you and I talked briefly over email about you coming on the show, but you did not hint at the treasure trove of material you had to talk about. <laughs> well, I've got some more, too, song. but I don't, I, if you want to get to ring them bells, I can, Woo, I can save yeah, some I'm, for another day. There you go. Right. Well, I'm going to do it in the second episode. That's uh, that's all amazing Amazing stuff. Uh, so, okay, yeah. So, ring the ring the bells. Uh, I I uh, I quoted the first couple of verses. I want to go through the rest of them now, and then we can talk about the song specifically. And so it goes on. He says, "Ring them bells, sweet Martha, for the poor man's son. Ring them bells, so the world will know that God is one. Oh, the shepherd is asleep where the willows weep, and the mountains are filled with lost sheep. Ring them bells for the blind and the deaf. Ring them bells for all of us who are left." Ring them bells for the chosen few who will judge the many when the game is through. Ring them bells for the time that flies, for the child that cries, when the innocence dies. And then he ends with, ring them bells, St. Catherine, from the top of the room. Ring them bells from the fortress for the lilies that bloom. Oh, the lines are long and the fighting is strong and they're breaking down the distance between right and and wrong. And one of the things I thought was interesting, uh, a note about this this song was as uh, you know we kind of joked about that you, know, you heard it on the radio, which seems unlikely. This was certainly not yeah, a hit. Was. This was not a hit in any way. It was never released as a single or anything like that. Yet it appears on Bob Dylan's Greatest Hits Volume Three. Now, some of the songs on that album, uh, that compilation, are clearly were hits. Gotta Serve Somebody, Tangle Up in Blue, Knocking on Heaven's Door. But then there are other ones in there that I get the sense are maybe Bob's picks. You know, that they went to him and said, what songs do you want on this? What, you know, what, th- this isn't so much a greatest hits record as it is a summation of the last several decades of your recording career. And so I think it's very instructive that of all the songs from Oh Mercy, uh, several of which got video accompaniment political world and everything is broken this is the one that ended up on greatest hits volume three which seems to suggest that bob has a particular love of this song so i want to ask you matt like why did you want to talk about this one yeah i I think this is the best song on the album um for sure uh i think right where it fits in the album is just perfect the way that you know it starts with political world and and it's surrounded by man in the long black coat and uh Everything, Everything is, broken. is broken. There's very, there's a lot of na 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 na. A lot of really heavy, chaotic sound around it. And when I hear the start of "Ring Them Bells" and "Shooting Star," doesn't it really sound like the clouds have lifted and kind of the sun's mm. peeking out? And all of a sudden, it's like this this vibrant glow of sound. And it just, it's, and along with like the organ or the piano sound and and the the spiritual spiritual theme, I think it and the you know Len Watt production and all that and the really upfront vocal, it just creates like this atmosphere of a song that I, I think it's just all of those components came together so well. And, and considering Bob's continued to play this over the years and, and played it on some, in some kind of big stages and big moments, I think he holds this place in a high regard. And yeah, I think, like you said, it's on grace. It's three. That's definitely a place where Bob thought, okay, like dignity. What are some songs that deserve a little bit of a, of a nudge here for people like, Hey, here's this song in case you missed it on all these albums that not that many people bought in relation to other albums in the past. Like there's some great work in the eighties and nineties and, and make sure you don't miss, you know, ring them bells or dignity or Brownsville girl songs like that. Yeah. You mentioned the Daniel Lanois production and, and it's sort of funny to me. This song is one of the f- least sounding Lanois-y songs on the record, in my opinion, I mean, you hear that really those those beautiful piano chords, which of course suggest the the kind of bells that he's talking about, without actually, luckily, like literally having bells on the track. But it's that the way the piano chord is played, it, it gives that feeling to it. But it really is a pretty sparse 
uh, sound. There isn't a lot of, a, you know, it's not like Man in the Long Back Coat, which, which you said follows the song, which has a lot of oral accompaniment, you know, right from the beginning with the sound effects and all the spooky stuff. This right. is kind of stripped down and a, and a lot simpler. And I will admit, uh, this song was never one of my particular favorites, partly because I just don't know what it's really all about. I, I mean, the, the religious imagery, which is steeped all over this song, uh, that's not anything that I'm particularly familiar with. I, I you know, I, I know, uh, I know Bob's lyrics from the very beginning all the way till now are are steeped in in biblical imagery, and I'm able to pick up on some of it here and there. Uh, but a lot of the references I don't particularly get. So I've always had to kind of come at another angle as to what this song sort of means to me. Again, again, I never want to get into the whole thing of what this song means in all caps. You know, right. like the the one de, the one definitive you know thing that that doesn't exist. But I've always been sort of taken with it as okay. This is a. I think that the title of this record, "Oh Mercy," can be instructive in that you can take that two different ways. You know, the, you the the you can take it as "Oh Mercy" as the sort of exhortation of 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 surprise or a kind of like uh grief a little oh mercy that kind of thing right or you can you can take it more as uh showing mercy show you know the, ask the, god the, to show you mercy ask god to showing mercy and that's to me what this this song is that to me is you're ringing bells for the 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 downtrodden or people oh, that have been yeah. you know and so that's how I sort of take it and when I look at it from that point of view then that's kind of my way into it as to what this is all about is that is that kind of your take on it yeah uh, so uh, yeah I looked at this pretty hard for a while to to kind of think about what I did because I I honestly listened to it just in a very surface level way I think it's it's so beautiful with the the first thing that struck me when I heard it on the radio all those years ago was well how different his voice was even from the uh, well stuff or from you know empire burlesque stuff instead mm-hmm. of the the 80s wheezing stuff that people made fun of so often it's a much more raw instead of singing through his nose he's singing with his throat you can hear the difference it's a very raw vocal and i think this is a song where bob has an empathetic vocal for the first time maybe since he's 60s even um when you think about uh he he once said in an interview uh a good singer, a person, a good singer, if you believe what they say. And I think this is a perfect mm. example of that. If you believe that they believe what they're singing about. And when he sings, you I think you can hear the empathy in the vocal with how raw it is and kind of the pauses and, and things that are in there. Um, as far as what it's about. Yeah. He, uh, in Chronicles, he talks a lot about the bells and how much he loved the NBC bells and how in Duluth, when he's a kid, <laughs> he remembers the bells ringing and it's not, uh, wedding bells are ringing the choirs beginning to sing or anything like that it's i can hear the church bells ringing in the yard i wonder who they're ringing for it's it's mm. uh, it's morning so when he's saying ring them bells just take ring them bells out and and sub mourn for uh so uh mourn for uh you know people that are suffering so he sings cross the valleys and streams so he's singing mourn from the place of beauty uh even though you know those valleys and streams are deep and they're wide and the world's on its side. So he's singing from a place of beauty and he's looking down at a place where things aren't going right. I think it's almost like an outsider view at the, at what's going on in the world. So it's kind of like a, an older, wiser, more polished chimes of freedom or hard rain's going to fall. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. 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 Ring them bells. The four winds blow. That's the Holy spirit is the four winds and, and with strength sing with an iron hand so that people will know because it's rush hour now that it's not simple anymore. It's rush hour now on the wheel and the plow. So instead of the simple wheel and the plow, now things are, are more rushed and not simple anymore. And the sacred cow isn't sacred. Not much is really sacred anymore. The sun's going down <laughs> upon the sacred cow. Um, mourn for uh, the poor man's son, people born into bad circumstances. Uh, the shepherd is asleep. The mountains are filled with lost sheep, which is uh, classic biblical imagery. Um, and then when he gets to that uh, bridge, when he just kind of, you know, says, you know, screw it with the more complicated explanations, I'm just going to list all the things that we're mourning for the blind and the deaf, for those that are left, for the chosen few, for the time that flies, for the child that cries, which uh, reminds me of hard rain. I met a young child beside a dead pony. And the way that, mm-hmm. that that bridge lays out, it's almost like 
times of freedom when he says tolling for the luckless, the abandoned, forsake, abandoned and forsake, and yeah. saying, you know, ring the bells for the blind and the deaf, for those that are left, for the chosen few. And then uh, so after he gets through with the four verses or so of, of, you know, who he should be mourning for, he closes out from the top of the room, from the fortress for the lilies that bloom. So to me, the top of the room and the fortress is, is looking down like from heaven or from a, a distant separate place and saying and looking down maybe on humanity and saying the lines are long, the fighting is strong and they're breaking down the distance between right and wrong. Like maybe humanity's still trying to figure all this out. And he's looking he's looking from a perspective of of a place where all Earth's problems are understood and maybe thing where lilies are blooming and things are better and saying let's more right and wrong. Uh, so that's kind of how I thought of it. I really like you. Yeah, well, there's a lot to lot to respond to in that because yeah, I, I love I love all the the cross references from the other songs. That's really interesting. I, I do love his singing on this. I think it is very crisp. Uh, like you, I heard once Rolling Stone I think referred to his stuff in the mid '80s as mannered whining. And I, well, I wouldn't yeah. quite go that far. Uh, it was you know <coughs> this this is this is not that. And I love those final lines where he says, and they're breaking down the distance between right and wrong. And I I think about that a lot because I think, you know, for people that want to do bad things, the best way to go about that is not just to go do the bad things. It is to blur the distinction between good and bad. Right. And it makes it so much easier to do bad when people can't tell the difference anymore. And I frankly think we're living through that period right now where there is just this constant um, assault on your own eyes and ears, you know, and this constant, well, let's just revise everything, you know, uh, you know, you know, you know, look, Nazis have some point of view. They kind of have a point of view, don't they? no. They don't, you know, but there are people out there that are now suggesting that, that there's good people on both sides, you know, that kind of nonsense. And I feel like that's what those lines are about. The breaking down the distance between right and wrong is to where none of it will matter anymore. Right. Because it's all just one big morass. And Mm -hmm. that is very, very upsetting to think about. And you think that this is Bob singing this 30 years ago. But I mean, it, it really that those lines jump out at me and the way he sings it. He's very, very crisp at the end where he's, he's, you know, I don't want to imitate him, but he's, he's really leaning in. He's, you know, breaking the difference between right and wrong. Like I'm, I'm butchering it by trying to imitate it, but he, but he's just very, very, you can almost hear the breath uh, as he's getting into those final lines. And so, yeah, it's an, it's a really amazing vocal performance. There is uh, an alternate take of this on the Telltale Signs bootleg series, which doesn't have a huge difference. There's a slightly different vocal take. Uh, I would not, I thought it's, you know, the version of Telltale Signs is very good. I don't know what, why this one would necessarily be preferred over the one. Uh, there's not a huge difference between the two, but, uh, but clearly this is something that he kind of knew what he wanted to do with it pretty early on. Um, I did some research and there, what, there hasn't been too much lyrical tinkering. Uh, although I did find on YouTube, there is a, a, a live version that he did in 2004, and he changes a couple of the words on the first verse. Uh, at the, the first verse ends with the world's on its side and time is running backwards and so is the bride. And in 2004, he's saying uh, they're deep and they're wide and the world's on its side and there's no place left to run and no place left to hide, uh, which is even more kind of a grim kind of uh, version of it. But, I mean, it, you mentioned that how much he's done this live and it has not been much. He's, he's done it 31 times. In the past 30 years, he hasn't done it since 2005. So it's not a song that he pulls out a whole lot, but he, you know, he does, he has done it occasionally. And there are several versions on YouTube you can find in the role. Quite interesting. And of course, you mentioned the Supper Club, which was, uh, you know, that's an amazing sort of. Uh, that's four of them right uh, there. So we did four. Play, yeah, right. right. Yeah, there you go. Um, I mean, doing doing it on the Supper Club really gives it some attention because those so, those shows were sort of very heavily focused upon. And of course, they were originally supposed to be the basis of the MTV Unplugged album and they didn't they weren't but I mean it's it's certainly a song that he himself probably uh, really likes even though he doesn't play it a whole lot and have you seen the, the Nara Japan great music experience Rob yes yes yeah he, he chose to play it for that which I think is probably the best performance of the song with that orchestra in Japan um, I also saw Bob play this from the front row in Ames in Iowa in 2002, and he did wow. sing, and there's no place left to hide. Which oh, is really okay. Cool. All right. Um, 
And then another one that I wasn't at, but is another great performance is from East Rutherford, your neck of the woods, uh, November 13th of 99. I don't know if you saw that show or not, but uh, I have to go back and look at my records. I might have. I might have. <laughs> that fall of 99 tour. Uh, I've listened to just about everything. And that fall of 99 tour is probably my favorite tour to listen to as far as bootlegs and and the ring them bells from East, East Rutherford in 99 is a great one. Um, but yeah, I wanted to talk a little bit also about kind of where Oh Mercy fits in, in the chronicling of his career, because for me, this is really, this is the midpoint as opposed to, you know, time out of mind being kind of where he turns things around. Um, like you, I love those, uh, acoustic albums from the, you know, a good as I've been to you and world gone wrong. Oh, I love those ones, but yes. I really think, he hit his stride with getting motivated by the Wilburys and then Oh Mercy. And I think it's mostly been good stuff since then. Um, he talks about in 87 in Locarno in Chronicles where he kind of right, figures right. out his new vocal approach and a new way of playing the guitar that would keep him inspired for the rest of his career. And uh, going to that dive bar and seeing the vocalist in that, in that bar. And that all happened in 87, 88 during those tours with the dead. And then, of course, 88, the Wilburys, and then 89, Old Mercy, which is mm. not just as, as far as creativity, kind of a turning point, but also exactly the halfway point of his recording career at this point. He made tapes here in Minnesota in 58 and 59 with his buddies. And then 30 years later, he did Old Mercy. And then 30 years later, here we are talking about Old Mercy. <laughs> it's pretty he's got another. He's got another 30 years to I go. I hope then. so. That'd be great. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I think like that singing style we were talking about i think it's so different if you listen to you know tweener and the monkey man and then listen to uh you know and the breaking down the distance i I think i feel like post uh rolling thunders shouting for that couple of months and then kind of the pinched off vocals that went through street legal and all the the religious stuff i think he definitely had some insecurities about what it sounded like when he sang from his diaphragm and let his throat be involved in the process. And I think in at the Old Mercy stage, he finally gave in with Daniel Lenoir there, trying to really coax the best possible versions, vocal versions of these songs out of him in studio over and over again to his frustration. I think this is the point where he was finally willing to say like, okay, I'm not going to try to sound like I fit into the eighties anymore. I'm going to, I'm going to give in and be the weathered old traditionalist and i'm gonna i'm gonna sing that way even if it has less commercial appeal this is what i am now and i'm really gonna get in touch with turning back the clock which is exactly what he did after oh mercy and and under the red sky he started singing those you know traditional ballads and all and sailor songs and some of the stuff i love the best of anything he's done and i think that's why i would consider oh mercy not just kind of the uh time frame wise kind of the middle of his career but also the 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 birth of the old traditional bard, never-ending tour, you know, uh, traveling musician that he kind of always looked up to is that's when he became what he always looked up to is the old blues man who went from town to town and played his songs. Yeah, and it really said it really is the uh, the, the sort of the turn that the career took. I mean, he had just signed again. We don't like to get too deep into the the personal woods of uh, weeds of his character because I don't think there's necessarily a a one to one ratio there. But at the same time, uh, he had just before he did Oh Mercy, he had signed a new contract with Columbia Records, and you know, even someone as commercially sort of uh, contrary as Bob is. He knew that, you know, when you're signing a new contract, you really got to make an impact because, of course, the last couple of records had kind of just been sort of dismissed, not even pilloried, but just dismissed, uh, which, if anything, is probably more of a, of a death for a popular artist. Uh, it's one thing if somebody – if you produce something that people kind of don't like, like Self-Portrait, uh, and they've spent a lot of time hating on it, but it's another thing to, to release a record that no one just even cares about. That could get – because then you become irrelevant, and that gets really scary. Uh, so he, you know, he, he signed a new deal with Columbia Records, and he kind of knew that he had to make this new album count. And right. you know, boy, boy, howdy, did he? You know what I mean? He did, worked yeah. with again. You talked about Daniel Lenoir, and we know about the the the, the fights they had on, uh, you know, on making this record as as uh, chronicled in Chronicles. Uh, and you know, I can only imagine what producing Bob Dylan's got to be like. It's probably pretty difficult. Uh, you know, I mean, how do you go to this guy and try and not to nudge him too far in one direction? As a side note about Oh Mercy, 
that uh, that record has my single favorite Bob Dylan album cover of all time. Uh, that painting uh, by someone named Trotsky. Uh, I just love that painting, and that's the uh, it's the header I use on the uh, Bob Dylan Pod Dylan Twitter account. Uh, I love the topography of it. To me, it, it looks it looks simultaneously hip and gritty and old timey and everything I want out of a Bob Dylan album cover. So whoever put that together at the Columbia Records graphic design department, uh, good on you because it is my all time favorite Bob Dylan. Uh, album cover i just think it's great as someone has as lived his life in the visual arts as i am i really appreciate when when uh bob gets a really sharp album cover i don't think he's had a couple of kind of a couple of duds lately but that one i think is really really good yeah it makes me wonder how big of a role he plays in that because it seems like sometimes he has very specific type of uh, bringing it all back home type of setup where he wants to have a robert johnson record sitting in the background yeah, and he wants to yep, be sitting here yep. or there and then sometimes it seems like he's just like whatever columbia throw something on it yeah. uh, <laughs> like, together yeah. through life was just like a random old photo it's like did bob say he wanted that or did they did he just say throw something that you think makes sense on it or he didn't yeah. even care yeah. it seems like but um yeah i think i think the talent was always there and i mean it was just a matter of you know, life gets in the way and the, the constant battle with motivation. And I think, yeah, getting that new contract in the late 80s, Bob just realized, OK, time to buckle down. I'm going to hire a serious producer that's going to keep me on task. And we're going to, you know, stay in this mansion in New Orleans until we get some usable songs out of this. <laughs> I love that idea, too, of recording the thing in, in a giant house. I mean, presumably somebody owns that house and. You know, I don't know. I'd put up a plaque somewhere if, if that happened. I mean, just in the, the previous episode that we just did, uh, which was on Sign on the Cross, my guest Elizabeth Sutton talks about being at Big Pink, which is where Bob recorded, of course, some of his most famous music. So Bob Bob really likes that a lot of times recording in houses, which is kind of an interesting idea. It's kind of a very different setup than from a, a recording studio. Now, this, this song, I mean, I, I mentioned already that, you know, it was certainly not a hit in any way, but Bob clearly likes it, and it, it did appear on the Greatest Hits record. It seems to have quite of an impact on other people uh, because it appeared on two very noticeable uh, cover versions. There's one by Joan Osborne, uh, who, of course, was on this show. Actually, when I think about it, I said to you earlier that you know, you're someone who's been closer to Bob than anyone I know. Well, I realize I talked to Joan Osborne. She sang with Bob, so there is that. Um, but on her uh, Dylan cover record from two years ago, she covers Ring Them Bells. And Joan Baez uh, released a covers record uh, where she covers, not only covers Ring Them Bells, the name of the album is Ring Them Bells. So this is, I feel like this is one of these songs that other songwriters and other musicians really, really like. You know, it's just, it, again, it wasn't maybe something that uh, an audience uh, other than diehard bobheads really go nuts for, uh, but uh, but other musicians really seem to appreciate how good it is. Yeah, I think it's uh, it's accessible. I think it's not something that's overwhelming you with wordplay or complicated poetic mm. lines. It's it's an approachable, beautiful song. It's three minutes long. It's not a big word salad. It's, it's just got a, a nice melody and... Uh, I think the the way Bob presents it on the album uh, is really top notch. It just it brings out the lyrics and uh, the beautiful piano at the beginning. It makes me feel like I'm sitting in a in a, the Sunday school church, you know, with stained glass <laughs> windows shining in. That's what that's what I see when that when the song starts. I I can remember what it was like to sit in the balcony at the church and have the stained glass window, the light pouring in. That's what Ring Them Bells uh, it makes me feel when I when I hear it. And it does use that. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, uh, it is kind of. Uh, I don't want to say simple because I never want to refer to any song as simple because I can't do it. But but yeah, the lines are short. You know, uh, the, the the arrangement is relatively simple. I would imagine if you wanted, if you knew how to, uh, if you knew how to play these instruments, you could do this. Uh, and then the language is very simple. And again, for Bob, very old timey. I mean, the first line it mentions heathens. Which is about as old timey as it gets. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned you mentioned the rush hour, which of course is sort of a modern conception. But yeah, I love that idea that we're going from rush hours to wheels and the wheel and the plow, which is you know uh, transposing several hundred years of of human evolution uh, in in just two lines. And so it just has it has that very it's one of those deceptively simple kind of things. And again, I, for the longest time, this was a song that I kind of dismissed because I just didn't know what it was. 
And I was like, I don't know what Bob's trying to say. Let me move on to Man in the Black, Bland in the Lone Black Coat, because I know I like that one. Uh, but over time, this has this has gained in my estimation because again, it's I found my way into it, and it does remind me of Chimes of Freedom, which is one of my favorites of his. Of this, the idea of of you know taking a moment to mourn or uh, you know kind of pour one out for. The, the downtrodden or the people that are suffering. And I think that's a worthwhile message uh, anytime in 89, 99, you know, or 2019. I think that's a, that's a, that's a, it's a wonderfully warm message uh, to put across. And so it's a really, it's a really great song. And uh, conceptually the whole, the album as a whole here on the 30th anniversary, uh, Oh Mercy kind of reminds me thematically of uh, John Wesley Harding and that it's a, a set of fairly short songs, uh, with a lot of spiritual imagery. It, uh, John Wesley Harding's obviously much less produced, that being the big difference. But as far as being a, a set of sh- short, simple spiritual songs, for the most part, and uh, with lots of, of you know spirituality uh, um, addressed, but not really delved into in, a, in kind of the early 80s kind of way, um, just a lot of wording that, that kind of is taken directly from the Bible. Um, and a lot of the songs, titles are just lines from the chorus, which obviously, like in the mid-60s, he did that very rarely. You know, he was calling things temporary, like Achilles. And, right, he's stuck inside a moat. Well, that's yeah, in the chorus, that actually course, is in the yeah. song. But, but uh, if you look at the titles of the songs, they're actually words that are in the songs, which on John Wesley Harding and Oh Mercy, that actually is the case on a lot of other albums it isn't. So that's another thing I noticed. Um, have you seen the Jack Bull, the movie? No. It, uh, it's like a Western movie and, of course, starring John Cusack because it's got Dylan songs in it. Um, my dad called me a few years ago. He was watching the Jack Bull on TV. And at the end, the, the main character gets hung. It's a Western and, and Ring Them Bells comes on. And my dad was oh, wow. so excited. Huh. He was like, wow, this Bob Dylan song. I don't know this song, but it's, it perfectly matches the mood of the movie at the end. They don't even have any dialogue. They just play Ring Them Bells all the way through and they hang this guy. And that's the end of the movie. And of course, I looked it up and it was a John Cusack movie. So he always is. He does everything he can, it seems like, to get Dylan songs in his movies. And especially uh, songs from Oh Mercy, because he uses most of the most time, of the time in, uh, sure. high, in uh, high fidelity. Right. So, so, he, so John Cusack, let him know it's the 30th anniversary of maybe <laughs> one of his favorite albums today. Um, but yeah, I think it speaks to the atmosphere this song creates, because you'd never say like, oh, ring them bells. That's the perfect song to put over a hanging in a Western but for some reason, it <laughs> right, just works. Right. Which he's got a lot of a lot of songs like that. That's really cool. I, I kind of want to check that out. Yeah, now. Just, yeah, to, just that if up. anything, just to see that scene. That's interesting. And yeah, I mean, I I I like the idea of feeling this is kind of a thematic sort of album, and that I mean, a lot of his albums are, of course. But I mean, this I, comparing it to John Wesley Harding is Harding is interesting, and I can sort of imagine the world where this is happening, where these bells are being rung for people that are suffering somewhere flittering in the background is this mysterious figure in a long black coat who is ignoring the bells being rung and is headed into town. And I feel like that's almost where this story picks up in the next song. Like, you know, after the bells have rung, we're now going to follow off this dark guy who's going to wander into town and cause a bunch of trouble. No, I think Oh Mercy as, as its strength as an album is in the cohesiveness of the songs, which sometimes an album is better than the individual pieces of, you know, that are the right, songs. Sure, and I sure. think uh, John Wesley Harding is an album like that. And I think Oh Mercy is absolutely an album like that. You take these yeah. 10 songs with these matching production kind of di- variations of this, of similar production, and then kind of looking at things from different points of view and perspectives. And then it's got a nice, uh, you know, thread that runs through it. And it's really cohesive. It's a great yeah, album. It is. It's a great album. And I'm glad uh, we, we just worked out. I didn't plan it, uh, but it just worked out that we got to record this on its 30th anniversary. So, again, that's uh, that worked out just great. And so, Matt, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. This was fantastic. I, I can't wait to have you again just to hear more of these other stories. <laughs> and uh, I have to see, uh, you know, this picture of your family at this concert. That that just warms my heart. That's, an, that, that's so cool. So thank you so much for reaching out and thank you for coming on. Yeah, you bet, Rob. It was really fun. Uh, where, why don't you tell people what your Twitter handle is so they can see some of the stuff you've been talking about? Yeah, so uh, I'm on Twitter at Matt, M-A-T-T underscore Stike, S-T-I-K-E. 
Um, I tweet about high school football in Minneapolis, but you can ignore all that if you want, because I also tweet a lot about <laughs> uh, random Bob Dylan stuff, lyrics, um, live tour updates. So because it will be on my Twitter um, live, uh, live recordings, my favorite versions of songs. Um, one, one thing I really like is 15, 20 years ago, if Bob like made a funny gesture or just like made a funny face, it was gone the second it got over with. And all you had was your memory. Now mm-hmm. I can go in and make a GIF. I can make a GIF of it and put it on my Twitter and we get it forever. So <laughs> if you want, if you want funny Bob Dylan gifts and live never ending tour updates and lots of pictures of my kids and, occasional commentary about Minnesota Twins baseball. You can go to Matt underscore Stike for all that great stuff. Very cool. You know, I'm a fan of the funny Bob Dylan gift. So yeah, I'm, I'm there. Absolutely. So, <laughs> well, this has just been great. I really enjoyed talking to you. Of course, everybody, if you want to listen to back episodes of the show, you can subscribe to the show on Apple podcasts and on Stitcher, and you can go to our website, which is fireandwaterpodcast.com. We're always talking Bob Dylan over on Twitter, which is at pod underscore Dylan. And finally, uh, I do want to say, of course, now we have a fire and water podcast network patreon where you can support the network and help keep the lights on uh, by making a one-time donation or an even better an ongoing monthly donation and for one of the levels one of the rewards you can get is you can be thanked on this very show and so i do have to thank uh one of our very generous contributors robert ward who uh, wanted to be name checked on pod dylan thank you robert and then there was someone else uh who donated in the name of pod dylan but asks to remain masked and anonymous so i'm going i'm going to honor that uh they know who they are and i know who they are and i appreciate them nonetheless so like i said if you want to contribute to the patreon and help keep pod dylan and all the other great shows on our network going please go to patreon.com slash fw podcast so that's going to do it for this episode thanks everybody for listening uh, we will see you later bye Ring them bells, ye heathen from the city that dreams. Ring them bells from the sanctuaries across the valleys and streams. For the deep and the wide, and the world's on its side. And time is running backwards, and so is the bride. St. Peter, where the four winds blow. Ring them bells with an iron hand so the people will know. Oh, it's rush hour now on the wheel and the plow. And the sun is a going down upon the sacred cow. <laughs>